Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder. Today, if you have been living under a rock, you may not know it, but Chris Cartman is that guy. He's probably gotten no sleep recently. I'm not 100% sure. The Actually, I kind of do know the exact numbers, but Chris, how are you doing? You might be sleep deprived, but you're out here making moves. And I'm here, you know, trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents. Trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents. Well, Cole Bradley, I'm also joined by you today. How are you doing? Uh, I'm also really tired. Definitely not as tired as Chris, but I'm doing good, Ethan. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. We apparently got a tired podcast today, but Noah, I mean, it's not peak hours for you, but how are you doing today? It's You're right. It's not peak hours, so I'm actually a little sluggish, but um yeah. What, what Chris? Yes. Chris just unmuted. What, 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 what are you going to say? <laughs> I'm going to say you look like you got your beauty rest. I mean, you're just, you know, I wish everybody could see you, you know, I mean, you're looking the fantastic. Curls, the curls are popping. Yeah. I'll say that, but yeah. Yeah. I, I'm going to say what you look like for a subsequent podcast. I'm just going to let other people sort of linger on that. Maybe even check out your Twitter, see if they can look, photo, <laughs> look up photos of you. We'll, uh, we'll have to circle uh, back. I have an old profile picture on my Twitter, so that's not going to help, but dang it. Let's update that. Certainly, certainly looks like it's golden hour in wherever Noah is right now. I'm not sure if that's your apartment or not, but anyways, let's get to the podcast at hand. We have a lot to talk about and a lot of interesting things to talk about, so I'm sure we will not be sluggish when talking about it, but this podcast is, believe it or not, going to be about the departure of Herm Edwards, three names into his fifth year at Arizona State after an embarrassing 30-21 to loss at home against MAC Team Eastern Michigan. Chris, you broke the news, uh, but even before that, you posted a video after the game. You've posted the video before, but this time... It was Herm Edwards, Michael Crow, and Ray Anderson meeting after the game, and many people have taken to that, that that was the time that he got fired. People even terming it end-zoned, as what some people have even said. But just to put everything clear, make it, make sure everyone's understanding what happened, can you take us through uh, what you know to have happened after that, from after that game to the point that Herm Edwards was fired the next day? Or relinquished yeah. of his role, I should say. Yeah, yeah, not fired, relinquished. Yeah, exactly. But um, it's just kind of funny when you think about it. But um, I had taken video of the same thing of Herm Edwards meeting in the end zone after the game at Sun Devil Stadium with Ray Anderson and Michael Crow, ASU's president, like a bunch of times before. Last year, I, I did it like after most of the home games. There was kind of a growing discontent among ASU fans about the state of the program last year and frustration about Ray Anderson and Michael Crow um, the, and the, the management of ASU athletics. And so that became like just this thing that I regularly did. And I, I didn't expect that, that Hermander was going to get fired and there's nothing, um, I mean, departing, departing ASU. I didn't expect that that was going to happen or I didn't think he was going to get fired or quit or resign or any of those things after that game. Right. I didn't think that was going to happen. Um, I, I did at the same time, though, believe that, uh, and I had said many times, like on this podcast and everywhere else, that Edwards wasn't going to be the coach probably by the end of the season. Like by December, he wasn't going to be at ASU. Um, so when I shot that video, it was just like another time of me shooting the video, but this one after a horrible loss that ASU suffered. And um, I thought that the following weeks would play out and then eventually there would be, you know, some, some, some movement that happened uh, with, you know, him no longer being the coach. Um, the next day, uh, you know, keep in mind, it was 8 p.m. kick. We, we left the press box at 3 a.m. Um, I slept at probably around 4.30 a.m. Got slept for a few hours, got up. Uh, and then I started, not that long after, I started to get some, uh, indication that Edwards wasn't in his office like he normally is. They're kind of everybody knows he's an early morning riser. You know, no matter what happens, he's like always talking about you know lifting a bunch of weights at four o'clock in the morning. Like I don't know why, but apparently that's what he does. And so I'm just like, uh, so wait, Herm Herm's not in the office. And then like two hours later, like yeah, he's not still not in the office. And then it was like, oh, he's he's here now in the office. Is what I was getting from people. But um, 
he's like behind closed door meetings. And then um, not long, like maybe another hour, hour and a half or so after that, it was like, uh, he's not going to be the coach anymore. Like they're telling the staff. And then I was like rapidly trying to get it so that I can report it. That took a little bit of time, not that much, maybe 10, 15 minutes. Finally got that, put that out there because you know, at that point, it's a race. Other people are going to find out and agents tell people and coaches tell people, et cetera. So um, when I when I did that, he was telling the team, actually. They, the team was finding out at like right around when I uh, put the news out. And um, yeah, so he didn't get, nothing happened the night before. You know, people I think went crazy. The, the, the video got, I don't know, 3 million plus views or something like that, which is, I, I've never seen anything like that happen. And it was mostly just like people putting their own spin on it. Like, like you said, Ethan, like he got end zoned, you know, uh, which that's not what happened. And, um, but, uh, then, then of course, um, they called a press conference. It was like an hour maybe or so hour and a half after we reported the news, ASU came out with a release about it, maybe 15 minutes after I reported it. And then, um, you know, and then we went to the press conference. We unpacked everything that Ray Anderson said at the press conference, which we're going to get into in the podcast. And then we covered Sean Iguano's introduction as interim head coach the following day, and then practice today as we're recording this on Tuesday. And probably tomorrow, I probably won't know what day of the week it is. Certainly a whirlwind of events. And I know Iguano will get into his press conference later but he said i think a crazy 48 hours or even crazy 24 hours before his press conference so it's not just the media members it's certainly been a kind of wild ride to this point where we are right now but the real thing that comes around this decision is as chris said it was maybe expected that at some point during the season it was possible edwards would be quote-unquote relinquished of his roles or fired or whatever you want to call it departing asu as a football coach but Happening this early, three games into his fifth year, may come as a little bit of a surprise. But Cole, we'll go to you first. And I just want to ask you, was this a surprise view that it happened at the time that it did? The shocking part for me isn't necessarily the fact that he that he did get let go or that they did part ways. It's the the fact that it is, you know, it, it has come after after just three weeks into the season. Uh I, I think it that has to be a seemingly unprecedented situation to, um, you know, let your coach go, you know, right before the start of conference play. Um, and I, I think that also probably says a lot to me about, um, you know, the timing of it all. I think, I think the timing to be quite frank in my mind is, is pretty poor. Um, but at the same time, I think, I think Ray Anderson and, and maybe the administration understood that, this might be a year where, you know, they just need to, they just have to get through it and sort of retool and uh, rebuild at the end of it and see what happens. But that the shocking thing for me is more so the timing of it all, um, because it's going to be very uh, interesting to see how they, how they, how they fare the rest of the way in conference play. Some of us picked this team to finish six and six. Um, I picked them to finish five and seven. I'm leaning actually more towards four and eight now at this point. Um, so we'll see what happens. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, what goes on the rest of the way. Yeah, it certainly should be pretty interesting in regards to the fact that at the middle of the season, it certainly makes it a little bit more difficult to kind of switch coaches, but they don't do go to an interim coach that has been with them. Noah will go to you first or sorry, you second now about if this was a surprise to you at all in terms of when it happened, how it happened or anything along those lines. Cole called it an unprecedented situation and perhaps it is, but it comes after um, a pretty unprecedented loss. Uh, Eastern Michigan before this season was voted to place fifth in the Mac West, not towards like the bottom of the Mac. It's like there's two conference, there's two divisions in the Mac and they were picked second to last in the Mac West <laughs> and ASU lost pretty convincingly. Um, they weren't necessarily blown out, uh, but it was an ugly performance and Eastern Michigan, once they had their initial lead, did not give it up uh, and controlled 
really the tempo of the game the rest of the way. And, you know, I'm not so sure that it is as poor timing as Cole said, just because this sort of this movement, this change could provide some sort of a jolt uh, to a team that has seen, at least from how they've played in these past two losses, have it, it seems like the tempo, the, the sort of the energy has been to play to stay in games, especially against Oklahoma State going into that kind of environment, um, the way, you know, some play calling when and things of that nature. It just seemed like because of sort of the conservatism, there wasn't necessarily a go get it attitude uh, from the coaches that were then relayed to the players. And so um, I feel like we can definitely see some 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 positive change from you know, a pretty abrupt change in leadership. Uh, at least, you know, that's what Ray Anderson mentioned he was looking for. Um, and, you know, as far as my expectations moving forward, it's it's basically not necessarily the case that this is the, the worst thing uh, that could have happened. They're, they're trying to make good of something that is a, like at its core, a pretty uh, messy situation. At the end of the day, I don't think anybody expected that Herm Edwards would only last three games this season, right? Um, the the fact that he made it through the whole offseason and all of the stuff that was going on, the other coaching departures, the, the mass media scrutiny, the, 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 it, for him to then lose to Eastern Michigan and be out, that wasn't uh, anywhere high up on, any, on anyone's bingo card of what was going to end up happening here. And even after that game, because of the relationship that, that Edwards has with Ray Anderson, I thought, okay, they're they're going to play Utah, USC, Washington, juggernaut schedule. They're not going to do well. And somewhere in the next few weeks, there's going to be a, a change. And then ASU is still going to have plenty of time after that to be able to figure out who it should hire and be able to make that type of a move. Um, so I didn't expect it. As I said earlier, that's why like the whole video out on the field, they, there was nothing else that I added to that or whatever. Like, could this be Edward's last game as coach? Or, I mean, I, I, I literally didn't think that was uh, a strong possibility. So, and you know, yeah, I guess, I guess potentially it was Michael Crow who, who was dissatisfied with kind of what he had seen. Uh, there was this incident that happened with Ray Anderson at Desert Financial with a fan telling him that ASC wasn't going to be good in football this year. And he like aggressively pushed back and said, you're going to see. And then ASC's one and two and lost to Eastern Michigan. So, you know, probably Michael Crow was hearing all off season that, hey, don't don't worry. Like things are going to be fine. You don't, you don't have to worry about all these transfers and all these coaching uh, departures. And I even asked Anderson about the I, – I said, you know, I know you're not going to talk about the investigation, but the fact that these all these coaches left, uh, how much of an impact do you think that's had that's had on the program? And he was like, and he was like, well, it hasn't had any because that happened months ago. It doesn't make any sense. Like, like the the coaching uh, suspensions last year impacted that team to some degree, at least from a focus or outside, you know, uh, noise standpoint or whatever. And then Zach Hill, Antonio Pierce. You know, it, it's it's all sort of changed, and I, I think um, at the same time, there really wasn't a lot of reason to think that that Anderson would pull the trigger, uh, or that Edwards would make the decision, or they'd come to some sort of an agreement on this thing. That this is what was going to happen at this time. Uh, just and and also, I've covered ASU a long time. And I know college athletics is changing quite rapidly, but. The ASU's never, in my in my years, they've never even replaced a coach during a season. So I've never seen anything like this. So that's another reason why I thought that you know it probably wouldn't happen. Yeah, and, and let's let's go right back to you, Chris, just in regards to more specifics about one kind of how Herm Edwards is leaving or departing, however you want to call it, and and kind of his contract as well. Because even when you look at it, we've even messed up a couple of times with this podcast. You think, all right a coach is fired, but we've been getting these kind of weird terms of relinquishing his role, relinquishing his duties, those types of things. But Ray Anderson clearly has come out and said he wasn't fired. Like I said, relinquishing of his duties. Uh, Ray Anderson in his press conference said it has to be worked out. Uh, We talked about his contract. He still owed about $8 million in his contract through 2024. If there was the event that he was fired, then 
maybe you would not end up getting that money, but it's just kind of confusing, especially given the fact that there is this NCAA investigation. There has been multiple coaches that have been working under Herm Edwards that have been fired for cause. So what do you make of the fact that Edwards wasn't fired for cause and it seemingly kind of just lets him walk away? Yeah. So I I think it's a bad look. And I think that there's a lot more unpacking of this that I'm going to need to do in the coming weeks and months. And, trying to do that basically um there's no way that 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 edwards should be able to get eight million dollars more out of asu when he we've already reported six months ago that not only did he participate in the stuff that led to other coaches resigning or being fired for cause but he, he participated. He knew all this stuff was going on. He met with kids on campus. He met with them off campus, including at a, a home in Paradise Valley during the dead period. He knew the rules. Like, and the NCAA knows this. And ASU knows that the NCAA knows this because ASU has uh, people that are on the Zooms where, or, or whatever the interviews are where they discuss these things with, um, with people involved in this case. So it, it, it doesn't really add up to me that ASU would fire these other coaches, but then Herm Edwards gets to walk away with $8 million. He's responsible for everything that happened in his program, and he was a participant in the things that took place that were not allowed. The notice of allegations very clearly is going to outline this when ASU eventually gets this. Things been, you know, delayed, you know, seems like it's gone very slow. I don't know about delay, but it's, it's not uh, coming anywhere near as close as soon as was initially anticipated in this situation. But um, the question really has to be asked is because Ray Anderson and Herm Edwards are such good friends, did that have any sort of impact on whether or not Herm Edwards did not get fired for cause at an earlier junction of this situation? Um, and if so, that is a massive conflict of interest to the tune of potentially up to $8 million. Um, and ASU is in a situation where its athletic department is being subsidized very significantly by its university to the point that there's been reporting that uh, more millions of dollars are, are coming in, in, in support for ASU athletics from the university than like almost any other Power 5 school. Uh, they didn't. They had no furloughs or layoffs during the pandemic, but they had a massive shortfall in revenue because of uh, attendance, games being canceled, uh, booster support dropping off, and this year their season tickets are down. They got all kinds of problems, right? So this matters because that's eight million dollars that could be put toward the next coaching staff, which is a lot of money, right? That's eight million dollars is the difference between your head coach making $4 million and $6 million, okay, over a four-year period. That's literally the difference between whether or not you can get a great head coach or not, potentially. And so I have a lot more questions about this, and I'm not – we have to get more, more, more information. Well, the one thing that is clear is ASU is moving on from Hearn Edwards as the head coach, and they're now going to have to move on for the rest of the season, especially move on from their last loss, which was against Eastern Michigan. We talked about it a little bit earlier on the podcast, an embarrassing loss, 30-21 to 21 on home turf at Sun Devil Stadium. Cole, the real thing we need to know about this game is what went wrong for the Sun Devils. Yeah, well, in what we have described in our reporting as perhaps its worst non-conference home loss since at least 2008, uh, ASU looked completely overmatched on both sides of the ball. And starting with starting with offensively, you know, coming off of a, a pretty tough loss against a much more formidable opponent um, in Oklahoma State on the road, um, the biggest thing was third downs. They went two for 13 on third downs. Didn't get much better against Eastern Michigan. They went three and out, I'm pretty sure, on their first uh, – definitely on their first two drives. Um, they finished four for nine on third downs. They didn't really possess the ball long enough to even convert um, in general, to be completely honest, um, because they were, just, they, they were just kept off the field, and they had the same sort of stagnated play calling that really um, 
has hindered them um, to this point. Uh, the running game, as always, was great. Uh, but you know, again, it, it was some, it was some miscues in the passing game. It was some, some interesting decisions on first and second down, uh, you know, credit, you know, I mean, it's not all on Glenn Thomas, but it's, you know, uh, Emory Jones had, uh, had a few different receivers on a number of different shot plays to try and get ASU back in the game that, um, you know, there was a couple overthrows, but it most, for the most part, they were actually pretty good balls, um, and none of ASU's receivers who were on the receiving end of those passes came down with those. Um, so that's pretty costly as well. You know, when you go back and look at it, those are easily at least one or two scores on separate occasions that ASU probably could have have, which means that, you know, this might be an entirely different podcast uh, if you think about it. Um, and then defensively, I mean, I'll be pretty brief, but they just got, they just got destroyed on the ground. Um, and, you know, we talked, we touted this defensive line quite a bit, and I still think that it is probably the most talented and deep unit on the team. There's no doubt about that, but, you know, we, we've sort of expressed this, um, this confidence in the unit and saying, you know, they, they are capable of being top three in the conference and sacks, you know, having multiple guys who can, um, maybe compete for all conference, uh, honors and stuff like that. And they just have not looked good these first three weeks. And it really all kind of culminated in this, in this past game against Eastern Michigan. You know, they got their first sack, which is Anthony Cooper. Merlin Robertson also had one as well. But they were just dominated at, at the line of scrimmage um, by Eastern Michigan's offensive line. And it was simple run plays. It was inside zones, uh, simple blocking schemes, no, no really like pull block or gap scheme stuff. Um, it was a lot of just simple runs and ASU could not stop it. So uh, that's going to be, that's going to be a pretty glaring thing moving forward, especially again, you know, as we said, uh, as they sort of get their ducks in a row for, um, you know, three consecutive games against ranked opponents to start conference play. It's not going to be easy. Well, Noah, what's your point of view on what really needs to be keyed in on with this performance in terms of what went wrong? Eastern Michigan established the story of the game from the get-go. I mean, after, after a quarter, ASU ran eight plays. That was as many first downs as EMU had uh, on their side of the ball offensively. And that was, that was it. EMU was able to control the tempo, be on the field, for quite a long time, wearing down the ASU defense, especially its defensive front, as Cole mentioned. They had three touchdowns in the first half. All of them came on long drives. One was 80-plus yards, 80 yards, I think, on the dot, and then the two others were 70-plus as well. And the way they did that really was pretty balanced, um, but it was centered on the ground game as Cole mentioned, and just to provide some perspective with some of the ridiculous numbers uh, that the Eagles had in that respect, they finished the game with 305 rushing yards total. Leading into that, their previous two games, they averaged 82 and a half rushing yards. That's not even close to half of their production Saturday night. Another thing to mention, there were some question marks regarding the Eastern Michigan offensive line. The center position was going back and forth between a couple of players. Uh, Dimitri Douglas took the start the first game. Richard Bates Jr., he took some snaps the second game, and he ultimately started the third game. But just the fact that they didn't have that solidified, um, the center is obviously the anchor of the offensive line. And it didn't seem to be an issue for them because they just dominated the line of scrimmage. And that is essentially allowed their bowling ball of a running back, Samson Evans. He, dude is huge, powerful, and he ran through some massive holes as well. And so you combine all of that. Evans himself, of the 305 rushing yards, had 258 on 36 carries. They knew what was working, and they didn't go away from it. That is Eastern Michigan. And just another thing, that's his career high. I mean, as you could probably expect. But before that, 
there was 89 career rushing yards. He hadn't eclipsed over 100 rushing yards before that game, not once. And so essentially what happened, whether it was ASU's defensive line not playing up to expectations or Eastern Michigan's offensive line playing above expectations, they made Samson Evans look like Earl Campbell uh, throughout that entire game from start to finish. And that was essentially what allowed that offense to stay on as long as they did. And the defense wore down the offensive side of the ball. Cole mentioned uh, there were some miscues there and they especially weren't able to, to keep drives going as much as they needed to, to really counteract the kind of success that Eastern Michigan was having. So people will remember after uh, ASU's massive struggles on third down against Oklahoma state, two of 13 in that game, we had a long conversation about that on the podcast. And I kept saying, you have to be able to get into manageable third downs, first of all, because half of their third downs were like obvious passing situations, right? They, they like, and, so they, they, they didn't sustain drives, and then that's how they weren't able to turn that into points, right? If you look at Eastern Michigan in this game, the first half alone, they converted nine of 10 third downs, okay? And then you look at, like, how, what that actually looks like, right? The first quarter alone, uh, you know, I'm looking at this right now. The first quarter alone, okay, they had um, – They had, bear with me, pardon me for this. They had third and one, technical malfunction. Third and one, third and one, third and three, third and two, uh, third and four, which, okay, they, uh, third, oh, never mind. That was ASU third and one. And then third and one. So was it really any surprise? And then in the second quarter, they had, um, let's see, they had, they converted a third and six. And then they converted a third and three and then a third and two. And then um, that was it. So nine out of 10, almost all of them were third and short. And so that's the reason that they were successful is they got into short. They stayed, you know, on schedule. They got into third and, and manageable situations. Then they ran good plays and they converted them. And that is what led to them having uh 17 first downs, I think, and like and 100, 300 rushing yards, 300 total yards at the half and all kinds of like crazy statistics that never should happen. And then um, what happened with ASU's defense really was no adjustments. They, uh, Omar Norman Lott got hurt. That led to ASU putting TJ Fesafea on the field side by side with Nesta Jade Silvera, two no tackles, but they, they lined him up as normal. Those guys were getting double teamed regularly, blown off the football. There was gaps being opened up, and they just ran the ball. They had a, a very average running back, had 253 rushing yards against ASU with no adjustments. Well, I mean, A, Herm Edwards, you know, apparently was a defensive coach uh, <laughs> going back to his whole career. So, like, you know, then you have Marvin Lewis on your sidelines, a defensive coach. Then you have Robert Rodriguez, he coached for the Minnesota Vikings as a defensive line coach. And then you have Donnie Henderson, who was an NFL defensive coordinator. So you literally have four defensive minds from the NFL. Uh, one of them a head coach, th- two of them a head coach, and four of them defensive coordinators or defensive line coaches. And all of them collectively could not figure out, okay, here's the adjustments that we probably should make to stop Eastern Michigan from having an average running back just run the ball all over us for 250 yards. That is humiliating, okay? The Eastern Michigan, are they worse than Michigan State? Yes. Are they worse than, than Michigan? Yes. Are they worse than Central Michigan? Yes. Are they worse than Western Michigan? Probably, okay? The ESPN FPI with 123 or whatever it is, uh, Division I uh, FBS teams, they were in the bottom 15 going into this game. This, it, I mean, this, this, is, this is embarrassing on a level that is almost hard to comprehend. It, it, the people said, you know, which I agree, 1999 ASU got blown out by New Mexico State at home. They had a receiver who had like 200 yards and a bunch of catches. I mean, just like owned ASU. This was not that far off 
Um, I also think that this was another indication of Glenn Thomas and ASU's offense not being able to to make good decisions uh, with keeping their their ability to stay on schedule offensively. You know, a little better than Oklahoma State, but not good enough. They need more RPOs, more quick game. Um, and they also need fewer penalties and uh, and fewer mistakes by their head coaching staff and their leaders because the end of halftime was mind-boggling, right? They get the ball back, a minute and something left, just over a minute left or whatever it was. Then, uh, and they're trailing by 10 points or whatever. And um, they, they get a delay a game, right? Then between their second and third down plays, 25 seconds ran off the clock from 55 seconds to like 30 seconds while they were like trying to figure out what play they should run. And then when they ended up a foot short of the marker, Herm Edwards called a timeout thinking that they had got the, to the marker um, when they were, when they were like still 50 yards at a field goal range with 20 something seconds left in the half. And then they had to punt after this. Right. I mean, uh, and they also had a, a false start that was in there, I believe that I'm forgetting. So and then in the second half, they had two timeouts that weren't in offensive situations when they were trailing and they need to keep those timeouts, one of which came after a stoppage, I'm pretty sure. And then I know it's been talked about by the others, but the penalties, nine penalties in this game, 10 penalties against Oklahoma State, new coordinator, new quarterback. We thought, okay, NAU, maybe they've resolved this. Maybe they're they're better. Uh, nope, nope, not actually actually much better. Um, they're one of the more penalized teams in the country and one of the more disciplined teams in the country as well. Certainly a tough loss against Eastern Michigan, but ASU are going to have to move on. And the way they have chosen to move on from all of this differing news with Herm Edwards being relinquished of his role and a loss to Eastern Michigan is to hire interim head coach Sean Aguano, who is most recently ASU's running backs coach for the last few seasons. He's a Hawaiian native. He's also been coached in Arizona for more than 20 years. He coached at Chandler High School and now at ASU. There is a press conference on Monday, which was his kind of introductory press conference as an interim head coach. Cole, you were there. What did you think about it? Uh, it was very passionate, Ethan. Uh, he was he he was very thorough with with what he was um, expressing and like you know the the importance of being in this role and having this opportunity, um, what that meant to him and his family. You know, he shed quite a few tears uh, at multiple different points. Um, so you could tell this is a guy who um, has worked really hard to get to the point that he's at and. I think we've all seen it throughout camp and stuff too. And just even in games and stuff, he's, he's a, he's a really good coach. Um, and he gets the best out of his, out of, he got the best out of his running backs um, before when that was his, you know, when he was formerly of that role, but um, now in a position where, you know, he's, he's going to have to sort of make the program his own, which is one of my biggest takeaways from it is, you know, the, sort of balancing out the fact that, Edwards with Edwards gone, um, Aguano is going to have to um, sort of build his own sort of unique philosophy, regardless of how how different or how similar it is to what has existed previously. Um, that's going to have to he's going to have to make it his own. Um, so that was a big thing. He also talked a little bit about recruiting as 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 a longtime coach at the at the high school level um, and a guy who you know has has seen some success at Chandler. Um, he said he's going to, he plans on, on being the only one or not the only one he plans on, you know, solely recruit on being the main recruiter in Arizona. Um, so there's a lot of things that I think, uh, you know, fans can probably be pretty optimistic about. Um, he was the longest tenured assistant on the staff uh, prior to Edwards, you know, being released. Um and so it, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how he steps into that role. But I'd say I'd say he laid down a pretty good first impression um, since being promoted uh, on Monday. Um, he definitely uh, he definitely let his emotions fly, so to speak. And um, you could tell he was very much appreciative of the position that he's in. Yeah, no, you were also there. What kind of takeaways did you have from that press conference? I'll start with 
uh, sort of the decision itself, just because of how unique uh, the choice is um, and how sort of that plays off of the situation overall. But Aguano, he, he doesn't have any prior head coaching or coordinating experience at the college level. His four years at ASU were his own are his only four years in, in college coaching and he was the running backs coach. But because, you know, you, you take into account the fact that ASU has two first-year coordinators and Glenn Thomas on the offensive side of the ball and Donnie Henderson on the defensive side of the ball, that definitely, in my opinion, contributed to them really putting their trust in, in Aguano here um, to move forward and take this team through what could be a saved season potentially. Um, if he's able to inject the kind of energy that he and Anderson mentioned is needed for this program. Um, but in terms of like when he came into the press conference, before he even said anything, he came in with a, with a black blazer, his hair slicked back. He, he looked the part. And the reason I bring that up is because at least when I've uh, been there uh, in his pressers or for media availability, when he was there doing interviews, it was a lot more casual. And so he really wanted to present himself in a way that was sort of representative of the magnitude of opportunity that he was getting. And then from that point on, throughout the entire course of what was a 30 minute plus presser, uh, he showed the kind of passion uh, and gratefulness um, that he has for this, basically this chance to to live out his dream as, as being a division one college coach. Um, and he mentioned throughout different points that um, his experience at uh, Chandler as a head coach, being as successful as he was there, wasn't uh, necessarily going to be the be all end all of how he now manages this new role at this level, but it definitely gives him some sort of foundation to work off of uh, at least early on. Um, one other thing that was especially prevalent was how much family uh, was a theme in all of his responses or in, or in many of his responses. Um, you know, he's, he's a native of, of Hawaii, uh, born and raised on the island of Kauai. Just, just the culture there, I'm, I'm from there. You know, I have extended, extended family there. It's just a lot of it is, is focused on basically that sort of environment, um, building off of just other people, relatives, and things of that nature. And for over 20 years of his life, he's been able to extend his family beyond his wife, his kids, to his players. And he made it clear that because of how much his, like his actual family supported him, sacrificed for him to go and pursue what he wanted to in the game of football, he, he, it was basically a matter of him knowing like he had to do something for the kids that he's coaching before and now um, beyond just the game of football, winning football games, getting to, you know, success in that way. Um, he just, he needed to make sure that he had an impact uh, that made them, you know, he mentioned good husbands, you know, upstanding citizens in society. And that overall, you know, that is a good way, you know, that's a good sign from this kind of coach that needs to now really be, you know, a galvanizing leader for the players, the coaches, as part of a community that has really, really been down uh, amid, you know, some controversies with NCAA investigation, the slow start this season. And so, you know, it, that com combined with the fact that, you know, he had his first practice today, the kind of energy, uh, urgency, intensity that he was preaching in that presser was especially evident uh, today on the football field. Only three periods were seen. Like, I think it lasted maybe like 20 minutes. But that, those 20 minutes were extremely productive. They had warm-ups. They went straight into a team period, which has not happened, like, at all from August till now, right? That period was especially physical, right? It was especially sort of just fast-paced, intense. And after that, the defense, literally the entire defense, ran down and back sprints that spanned the entire length of the field. And so all of these different things, right, are all new that have popped up on his first day on the job. And so he, 
he understands that he doesn't have a lot of time to establish the kind of culture that he feels this team needs to move forward and have a chance at success, have a chance at competing against the kind of teams that they're going to be facing with number 13 Utah in, in four days or maybe even less than four days. Uh, USC next week, number seven ranked in the nation, and then number 18 Washington the week after that. Uh, it, big picture wise, they understand what uh, he at least understands what needs to be done, the extent to which the players are receptive. There is some mixed uh, sort of support on that end. Uh, based on something that, uh, based on what Case Hatch, uh, one of the team captains, said in his uh, post-practice presser today, but there, there's steps in the right direction. There, there's indicators uh, from from Aguano being in this new position. Just you know, let, like 24, maybe a little bit over 24 hours at this point. So for Aguano, you know, personally, because we have that sort of connection from the islands, I can feel a little bit. Um, sort of, I can feel some promise with him in this new role, uh, but it's just about sort of the results because he can say as much as he can, uh, the practices can go well, but it's it's ultimately going to be about how that translates to the results when they play other teams. And so we're just going to have to wait to see how that rolls out. With the culture Iguano's trying to set that you just talked about, Noah, Chris, you've known Iguano for a good amount of years, even with him covering Chandler High School in Arizona, you've known him. What do you know about him that fans might want to know that could show how he can fit and how he can change this team around this season, just based off of what you know about him? Yeah. So again, like I, I go back a long time before Sean was even the head coach at Chandler. He was just an assistant there. I saw the type of success that he had getting that program really firing on all cylinders um for a long time there hadn't even beat Hamilton and then to go from not being able to beat Hamilton to winning four state championships pretty pretty amazing accomplishment he deserves a lot of credit for that um been to a lot of his games called some of his games in fact uh from the booth uh definitely not my strongest uh, aspect uh, as a in the media person but uh, um I just think that he has a very good way about him of getting guys to be bought in and think that they're part of a family, a tight knit group of people, but then also sort of have discipline. And that's what ASU's really largely been missing to a large degree, because as I've said, you know, Todd Graham, he had the discipline part down, but not a lot, not enough players thought that he actually genuinely cared about them and were willing to run through a brick wall for him at the end of the day. And then you had on the other end of the spectrum, the Herm Edwards, Dennis Erickson, and they didn't have enough discipline. They didn't have enough toughness and fight and, and uh, you know, doggedness. And um, so I, I, I feel like there is an opportunity for Aguano to be able to, to pull from both of those things almost equally in a way that makes a difference, right? Problem, though, is that it's hard to make those sorts of significant changes on the fly when your schemes are not going to change, your, your coordinators are not going to be different. Your players aren't going to be any different. Their, their, their conditioning and their training, is not going to be any different. There's all these other things that are, are, are basically the same. And you're going to have to just from a purely pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of a way figure out how you're going to go from losing to Eastern Michigan to being competitive against number 13, Utah, followed by a top 10 USC, followed by a top 20 Washington. And that's really hard. And so I'm not ruling out the possibility that he might, uh, you know, find lightning uh, in, in a bottle and wow, like something crazy happens and Sean Aguano stays because it, it wouldn't be the first time ever that something like that happened. But, uh, and I, I think that the players will ultimately come to enjoy him and feel like that they, they can give themselves fully to what he's trying to do. Um, but to think that that's going to result in ASU not having a losing record this year is, is at this point, that's a tough sell for me. Can't, can't really get there yet. Well, whether you talk about a new coach or not, it's going to be a tough situation for ASU heading into the next few weeks. Cole, we'll go to you first. You have a new coach, but they also have a run of games that's going to be super tough. 
What do you see in terms of how difficult of a situation this is? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously never ideal to have, you know, an interim be leading you through the the fire that is the start of ASU's conference play, um, which features three of some of the best teams in the Pac-12 this year. Um, obviously, number 13, Utah, number seven, USC on the road the next week, and then number 18, Washington, which has been um, lighting the world on fire to this point, I'd say. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very difficult situation, Ethan. And, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, but there's, there's quite a chance that ASU starts the season one and five going into their bye if they don't get things together in a hurry. Um, I think that's actually very realistic at this point. Um, and I wouldn't doubt if that is the case, um, by the time we get to that point, but, uh, you know, I guess it is sort of promising, uh, to hear, you know, some things. Um, you know, with regards to Iguano sort of running a bit of a tighter ship, making some some first impressions um, in his first practice. Uh, I feel like you have to um, at least establish some sort of um, base there and some sort of confidence um, that, you know, things aren't going to be as bad as many people think um, heading into conference play. But, uh, you know, without a shade of a doubt, it's going to it's the, the odds are not in their favor. Noah, what about you? What are your thoughts on this situation that ASU finds itself in in terms of the next couple of football games they have to play? I mean, they'll probably go one in five, but the way in which they do that uh, might give some indication as to how they can perform in some uh, less difficult games thereafter. Um, I'm not a coach. I'm not necessarily an expert. Um, in terms of, you know, the schemes, the X's and O's, but, you know, in terms of just the mentality going out there, especially on the offensive side of the ball, I sort of hinted at it earlier. They, they just, it just felt like they were playing not to lose by 20 or 30 points in the losses that they did, um, that they did accumulate. Um, and I just feel like in order to counteract that, because for one, the, the huddling situation, the fact that Edwards mentioned last spring that that was going to be a bigger component of this offense uh, under Glenn Thomas, it was partly at least to make up for the fact that they had some they had some penalty struggles, like really massive um, errors that would pop up because of alignment issues and things of that nature, being the most penalized program in the Power Five last year, and you know. When you went into the first game, they blew out NAU, only had about four penalties. It, it was looking on the up as far as how that um, sort of slower moving uh, operation was going to help in terms of uh, their, you know, their, their issues with getting too many yellow flags. But then you have 10 penalties against Oklahoma State, nine more against Eastern Michigan. And now you're moving slow and still picking up uh, some pretty costly penalties. So I think at this point, some, something along the lines of like playing a little bit more like they have nothing to lose, uh, you know, maybe not going fully no huddle because that'll be a pretty drastic change. And, and Guano mentioned like he doesn't necessarily want to go to those depths with, uh, with him now in the, in the head coaching position, but just sort of speeding things up, allowing his guys to, to really pick up some momentum uh, get guys in space, you know, keep defense moving, uh, maybe even potentially if they can stay on the field, wear down some opposing uh, opposing units, which has not even been close uh, to the case with how they've been going about their uh, with how they've been going about things on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, I think you guys make some good points. Um, there's something to be said about energy and emotion it's not as though the same team was competitive against Oklahoma State I think all of us watched that and we thought that they could have easily been in that game all the way to the end possibly even won that game had they not had some of the self-inflicted things happen so I'm I'm a big believer that things are rarely you know as good as they may seem at the high points or as bad as they may seem at the low points more kind of in the middle, but there's definitely some things that happen. In the past, we have 
Definitely seen ASU have some surprising turnaround games that are big wins that you didn't expect for to happen. I think I remember one, maybe it was 2015, Todd Graham, ASU was seemed very destined to totally fall apart. And they had lost three games in a row. And then Washington came into Tempe and was a very good team. And ASU won that game. Um, you know, Michigan State, ASU had, uh, you know, beat, beat them. And so you just, you just, you don't really know. I don't think that their schemes are, um, you know, incapable of them winning or anything like that. But the issues that they had against Eastern Michigan, no adjustments on defense, getting gashed in the run game, not changing what they were doing with their gap fits, that, that was a very, very bad thing. And then the, I think some of the things they've done offensively with Emory Jones, not moving the pocket more, not, not having more RPOs, um, uh, not not uh, just trying to get more quick game passes, right? I think those things, that's where Sean DeGuan is probably going to have most the most impact because he was an offensive coach at, coach at Chandler, saw today in practice. They were really trying to go fast between plays, even when they were sort of huddling and uh, not letting defense get as comfortable or switch out personnel and things of that nature. So, um, but the task is extremely difficult. ASU hasn't been one in five since 1942. Um, and they're going to be a very clear underdog in all of these three games, even probably Washington at home. I think what are they a 13 or 14 point underdog against Utah right now at home? That is, that's massive. Uh, they're going to be a 20 point underdog at US at USC. So that's, it's bad. But at the same time, they are a 20 point favorite against Eastern Michigan. Um, so you never exactly know. And that's kind of why you play the games, but, um, uh, it's Sean Aguano is in an extraordinarily difficult situation to be able to prove that he is capable of, uh, you know, turning this around such that he can become the head coach full-time at ASU. And as you say that he will, of course, be given as far as we know, every chance to become the head coach of ASU football, but there is going to be a coaching search, which we heard a little bit from Ray Anderson in terms of what that coaching search may look like in a press conference on Sunday after the news that Herm Edwards would be relinquished of his role. Cole, we'll go to you. What did you hear from Ray Anderson? And just what are you kind of thinking regarding this coaching search and what it may look like? Yeah, Ethan, well, to start, Ray, Ray talked a lot about um, how, the the program is is going to try and look for someone who is younger, um, who's a little bit more data driven and analytically um, minded, uh, which I think is is sort of is sort of an interesting um, switch from what the philosophy was before. I think um, when Edwards was brought in and sort of the 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 track record that ASU has had when it comes to at least its last several head coaches bringing in some guys who are older on perhaps the last leg of their coaching career who are looking for one more shot. Edwards was certainly, you know, fitting that archetype, so to speak. Um, now they're, I guess, switching gears completely and looking for someone who they can potentially build, you know, have build from the ground up and, you know, run with for, for, you know, more than at least five years, maybe even 10 years. I don't know what their ambitions are. I think that's ideal, but that was a big takeaway for sure. Um, also he, he often deflected, um, a lots of, lots of stuff related to the NCAA investigation, which still kind of looms large in the background of all this. Um, I'm sure, you know, in, in, in the coming months, we'll hear some more about that with regards, um, to what's happening on that front, but that all has kind of sort of been a, a looming factor, um, behind all of this and, even though Anderson said that wasn't at play when it came to the decision to relieve or part ways with, with Edwards, um, you certainly have to think that, that that's, that's something that um, you sort of have to put an asterisk next to um, whenever you talk about Edwards moving forward. But those are some of the biggest takeaways for me. Noah, what about you? This is a pretty big deal coaching search at, ASU, what do you think is going to happen and what do you expect from what you've heard from Ray Anderson? I'm not sure how many people listening to this podcast have read um, what Chris put up yesterday um, in terms of some of the, the traits or qualities 
that uh, this next coach has to have. But judging from what Anderson has said, uh, or at least what he said on Sunday, he's really trying to key in on someone that uh, can be a motiva motivator uh, for uh, his own staff, for the players, to basically light a fire uh, under everyone involved with ASU football. And, you know, there's, there's definitely people like that out there. Um, the extent to which they'll also meet some of the other criteria as, part, as far as being like a complete football coach, that's harder to find. Um, but just speaking to sort of what Aguano has displayed in the short time uh, that he's been in this new position, at practice today, he, you know, as we talked about earlier, he really spliced things up, uh, changed the sort of the vibe of practice, uh, and the players sort of painfully became aware of that um, on his first day. There were some players on the sideline, apparently, um, that were not as happy with some of the uh, differences between how Aguano ran today's practice and how Edwards did it for uh, the entirety of his tenure. Um, and Aguano, according to Case Hatch, this is what Aguano said. He said, you know, essentially that's fine. This is how it's going to be because this is how I know to do it. Uh, and so we're going to move forward with it. And so, you know, in terms of his dedication, his commitment to, um, to a certain culture uh, that is a little more strict. Uh, that's, that's, you know, a pretty strong contrast to what Edwards had in place. That could be something that falls in line with what Anderson is looking for, at least, you know, on that front, which is, which was especially prominent um, in his presser. So. I'm, I'm probably at this point in time, I I don't really have a lot of confidence that Ray Anderson and Michael Crow know what they really should be looking at and why and how. Identifying those people, I think it's much more to them about trying to sell whoever they end up with in the way that they think is best. Um, I've said it pretty clearly in the past. I don't think that, her, that Ray Anderson should be the person who picks the next head coach. I understand that because he's currently the athletic director, he's going to be significantly involved. There's probably going to be a search firm. There should be some committee. There needs to be some way of, of vetting uh, the actual football knowledge of whoever they're looking at. Um, I, biggest takeaway for me from what Ray Anderson said is that it seems like they're going to look to different types of candidates than they have in the past. What they've done historically is Michael Crow. He likes to hire somebody that has a, a prominent name ID. Uh, everybody knew who who Dennis Erickson was. He had won national championships. Everybody know who Herm Edwards was. He was on ESPN for nearly a decade and had been an NFL head coach. And so it was like, oh, we got a guy with a name. We didn't have to pay him that much money uh, relative to where everybody's making out there across the country. And let's figure out a way to sort of couch this to make it seem like we're, we're going to be able to be successful. And that's when you come in with the pro model or whatever you want to call it, you know, ended up not really looking like that professional at the end of the day. Um, it, or they've gone with the Todd Graham type of guy that, you know, the authoritarian iron fisted guy who, um, burned, burned out his staff, burned out his players after several, several years. Um, maybe for the first time ASU might consider hiring a prominent coordinator or maybe a group of five head coach, uh, guys that they haven't hired in the past, but they see that maybe they have a lot of the ability to keep up with the ever-changing landscape underneath their feet, which Ray Anderson talked a lot about, in addition to the data and analytics and things that, that Cole mentioned. And um, we'll find out. I did talk about the three things that ASU should be looking for uh, in the Devil Sanctuary in extreme detail, and we're going to be getting more into that in our premium podcast later this week. There is certainly a lot more talk to be had about both this head coaching change, head coaching searches, and a Utah game that's coming up over the weekend. So make sure to stay tuned to all of our content. As we have alluded to, there is coaching hot board information on the website and on the board. There's also 
tidbits that we talk about that we will continue to talk about through this coaching search. One of these that have already been put out is the fact that Irvin Meyer won't be the ASU head coach. So if you want small tidbits of information along the way of this head coaching search and all of the changes going along around ASU football, make sure to stay tuned to sundevilsource.com. But as Chris said, we will have a premium podcast up for you uh, on Thursday or Friday this week, telling you all you need to know about these coaching changes and coaching hot board, as well as getting you ready for ASU against Utah this weekend, which will be the first under interim head coach, Sean Aguano. But that'll be it for now for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. For Chris Cartman, Noah Furtado, and Cole Bradley, I'm Ethan Ryder. We'll see you guys next time.